Enjoy a nice, long, extended weekend with my family out of town. We went up north. We went up to the North Shore for a family event that uh, I'll get into some anecdotal stuff about that later in the program. But suffice to say, for the purposes of our initial topic today, I was out of signal range. There was no internet, no cell phone signal. It was like going back in time. I had no idea what was going on back here in the cities. And when we drove back down on Sunday night and uh, all the notifications started going like crazy as we re-entered civilization, I was confronted with uh, a message including this this Facebook post that was put up by uh, a Mr. What's the guy's name? Austin Monahan regarding Keith Ellison and allegations of abuse in a previous relationship. And, you know, at face value, it's a guy who I don't know making a Facebook post. And literally anybody can do that. And so my my initial sense was, okay, well, I'm not going to put a whole lot of stock into this. I'm going to take this with a huge grain of salt because I don't know who this guy is. I don't know if there's any credibility to this. Well, it didn't take long for for the the corroborating evidence to start manifesting on my feeds and your feeds as well. And now this is a thing. One day before the primary election, Keith Ellison, according to uh, NPR News, one of the leading candidates to be Minnesota's next attorney general, confronted allegations Sunday of domestic abuse of a former girlfriend that surfaced days before the election that will decide the party's nominee. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. We're streaming on TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. You can catch us 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. Catch up on past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app. And our channel will pop right up there for you. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us throughout the evening tonight. Brad Ullman takes those calls and produces the show. To start things off, we are joined by commentator and contributor to Alpha News, John Gilmore. Welcome to the show, John. Uh, thank you very much, Walter, for having me on. Of course. And, you know, you're someone who I gather from uh, monitoring, you know, because I follow you on Twitter, as everyone should. And, and I gather that this is something you've had your ear to the ground on before this latest iteration of the story, this, that there's a history of alleged abusive behavior with Keith Ellison. Can you tell us a little bit about what you know and how you've been following this? Sure. There's a couple of things, Walter, that I think it would be helpful for your listeners to know, and that is uh, this woman, uh, Karen Monahan. She's, she's public. Her name is out there in the news report. Um, had been tweeting for some time about an abusive relationship, both psychologically and physically, emotionally, uh, that sort of thing, and it was an open secret among. Minnesota media mm -hmm. that the person involved was Keith Ellison. There is, uh, as Ellison himself has said in his statement in response to her son's Facebook post that you mentioned at, uh, at the outset of your program, um, they were in a long-term relationship. I don't know if that was three years or five. Everybody's mileage uh, varies, but it wasn't, you know, summer fling or something like right. that. They had moved in together. 
and there is shared pictures and so forth on social media of the two of them together. So the relationship is well established, and apparently that came to an end in 2016. Uh, in the interim between then and now, uh, Karen Monahan became increasingly open on her Twitter feed, and I didn't, I'm not friends with her on Facebook, so I don't know anything that she's put out there in this regard, but on Twitter, it's very clear that um, she's addressing some of her tweets literally to Keith Ellison, saying, why did you do these things? Mm -hmm. And my understanding to the local media, Walter, is that she wouldn't go on the record. So we're here Monday night. As of last Thursday, uh, media in the Twin Cities, some of us at least, understood that CNN was about to break that story, quote, eminently. Now, again, nobody knew exactly what that meant. Did it mean Friday? Did it mean Saturday? And nothing um, happened Friday, and nothing happened Saturday. I think it's fair to say that everybody following this story below the waterline, before the reportorial uh, waterline, was a little bit taken aback or, or maybe more accurately blindsided that, A, it was Facebook, and B, it came from her son. Mm-hmm. And so that was the post that you referenced and that everybody saw. What happened next, though, which made it interesting, in which local media did not take advantage of deliberately, um, in, in my opinion, is Deborah Hillstrom, who is a Democrat running against Keith Ellison in tomorrow's primary for the uh, Democratic nomination to be our next Attorney General. Mm-hmm. I don't think I need to tell you or your listeners what a disaster for the state of Minnesota <laughs> right. would be if Keith Ellison is our Attorney General. Correct. That was the book, and Twin Cities media ignored it. And as it continued to break into Sunday, Alpha News was the first out of the door. My colleague on the news side, Christine Bauman, had a widely read piece simply saying what we knew. She reported professionally and everything that was above the waterline. She didn't try to answer a lot of the questions that undoubtedly she had and many other people. But just letting readers know what the fuss was about at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've subsequently had a statement from uh, Congressman Ellison who denies any abuse allegations. The son mentioned a video on his mother's computer that he saw dragging her feet first off of the bed, telling her to get the F out. This was a place they both shared. It wasn't his own personal mm-hmm. apartment. Following right. uh, her the B word and all that sort of stuff. I have to say that locally, only the Associated Press had that in the front end of their story. Most other outlets, unfortunately, have vague allegations, or rather they do a, uh, a summary of these vague allegations, when in fact she was very specific. She has since subsequently issued uh, a 3,000-word statement on the matter, and you can tell that she isn't media savvy, God bless her. Uh, She's simply trying to tell her story, which the liberals tell us we should at least take at face value and they can be demonstrably uh, rebutted. Mm -hmm. Um, Sorry to say, Walter Hudson, Keith Ellison is getting every media benefit of the doubt. Oh, sure. If it were Jason Lewis or Eric Paulson, yeah. it would be the complete reverse. Yeah. Um, Samantha Change uh, from BizPack, um, I'm sorry, Samantha Chang from uh, 
BizPack review was on Rush Limbaugh today. There was a guest host, and she came on because she thinks that she first broke it. Um, we are probably within an hour of each other, and she has the same uh, details that Alpha News did. Now, what your listeners and maybe probably, Walter, you may not even be aware of, is within the last four or five hours, I retweeted Jeff Kolb, who is a Republican activist, and he, I think, is still currently on the Crystal City Committee, Council, rather. Mm -hmm. I know he isn't going to run for re-election. I just don't know if his term has expired. But Jeff Kolb, and he doesn't know how, managed to come up with a copy of a 911 call log from May 16th, 2005, where the woman was calling 911 to report, and this is in uh, the report, the log that is out there on Twitter. I put it up on Facebook as well. Quote, an assault by Keith Ellison. Well, going further into the weeds, um, in 2006, um, I believe the woman's name is Amy Lawrence. Don't hold me to that. She, she penned an op-ed about the abuse that she suffered at the hands of Congressman Ellison, who wasn't, of course, Congress, in Congress then. And Cole, in a subsequent tweet, indicates he has records that show she was the woman who lived at the address from which the 9-11 call came. I have no doubt to Jeff's uh, Jeff, uh, research abilities, and I'm sure he's checking twice, and the call log was official and would speak for itself. So that's just breaking. Uh, Christine Bauman is writing a story on that for Alpha News that will be up later tonight. But we have uh, another instance of a woman who, unfortunately, uh, we all know it was a different time, um, didn't get the proper, the proper attention from all of us um, when it came to physically, emotionally abusive relationships and, and the whole nine yards. So it's a question, really, Walter Hudson, of what the media is going to do with this. Mm-hmm. David Weigel from the Washington Post tweeted early, um, or just after the story broke rather on Sunday, that he had talked to local media. They had checked it out, and it didn't pan out. That's a complete fabrication. That's completely false. I know people in different media outlets in the Twin Cities who are trying to chase the story. None of them could go public because at that time, and it's her absolute right, Karen Monahan was not willing to be named and to go public with it. But the idea that this is already pre-discredited is simply a lie from the Washington Post. I can't believe that the Washington Post (laughs) would say something untrue. Right. Wow. Well, you've you've definitely dropped a whole lot of information that uh, I was not aware of, and I'm sure our listeners uh, may not have been aware of as well. Definitely appreciate that. Uh, and you know, I, we got other callers on the line who want to uh, chime in on this. Now, I, I retweeted. I found that tweet you were talking about where you retweeted Jeff Cole, and I just uh, put it up on the TCNT hashtag um, stream for folks so that they can follow that. And of course, you said there's an Alpha News post forthcoming following up on uh, that investigation and 911 call this could be something so what's your read john gilmore on how this is going to play out tomorrow are we going to end up having a, a statewide candidate for attorney general who's actively being investigated for domestic assault the short answer is yes walter i think keith ellison wins the primary mm-hmm. and people get locked in with early vote i'm uh, early voting i'm not a fan of it for any number of reasons right but i do think and the question becomes, is there a mechanism in state law by which the Democrats can remove him 
and put somebody else in. Now, a former um, Senator House staffer with Republicans told me that something like that happened in 2012, and our state Supreme Court gave their imprimatur to it. And then, fortunately, um, our legislature took steps to correct the law so that it couldn't happen again. Mm-hmm. So it's an open question whether or not if they if they uh, bring enough pressure to bear and remove Ellison from the ballot, right. um, whether they could substitute somebody in or, or whether they'd have to run a writing campaign. I have absolutely no doubt that Keith Ellison will survive this. I have no doubt that S. May Murphy will probably get the one and only interview and in her trademark softball way, uh, mm-hmm. let him skate. And I, I think, unfortunately, we're seeing in real time uh, egregious media bias. Right. I'm asking for them to treat the matter fairly. They're going to the mat to downplay it and to uh, keep it from becoming larger. One more thing. Ari Fleischer, the former spokesman for, I think it was George W. Bush, said on Twitter, if this had happened to one of our members of Congress running for an attorney general who had the high profile that Keith Ellison does and was chair of the DNC, we would be flooded at the RNC headquarters with reporters. They'd be banging on our door. National media haven't even approached the DNC. Mm-hmm. Tom Perez, chairman, for comment. And, and that tells you all you need to know. Yep, it absolutely does. Appreciate uh, the commentary, John Gilmore. Appreciate the updates. Uh, don't be shy about letting us know more, and we'll keep an eye on the, uh, the Alpha News Twitter feed. And yours as well. Will do. Thank you very much, Walter. Yep. Have a good night. All right. We'll talk with Dan and Colin and the rest of you when we return. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. We've been talking about Keith Ellison and allegations of domestic abuse. We just got off with John Gilmore, who was uh, on the phone to give us an update from uh, his on-the-ground perspective. He's been chasing down this story, uh, working as a contributor for Alpha News, and apparently they have more developments forthcoming. So I'll be sure to follow John Gilmore and Alpha News on Twitter to be the first to see those. Let's talk to Dan in Invergrove Heights. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Walter. I have a question about Keith Ellison, but it has nothing to do with domestic violence. Is that okay? No, sure. Go ahead. All right. Thank you. So when he was elected to be a Minnesota state congressman, Keith Ellison was able to be sworn in on a Koran or the Koran. I'm not sure if it's all of the, but... My point is, if Keith Ellison wins the race for Minnesota Attorney General, Mm -hmm. and if he's able to be sworn in on the Koran, Mm -hmm. I want to know how and when and in what circumstances would Keith Ellison reconcile following Sharia law versus following American law as an Attorney General? I mean, for example, would he allow Muslim uh, women or, or Muslim children, unfortunately, you know, the genital mutilation, uh, uh, you know, under Sharia law. I mean, how, how would he how would he reconcile that with, within himself? Yeah, I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask the question to, but I certainly take your point in terms of uh, wondering whether there would potentially be some divided loyalties there. I got to tell you, I, 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 I truly admire you as a thinker. You're growing by leaps and bounds, and I, my, I take my hat off to you. All Thank right. you. I appreciate it, Dan. Appreciate you calling the program. 
So the Daily Caller has uh, some follow-up to this. A liberal-leaning women's group is calling on Democratic Minnesota Representative Keith Ellison to resign from Congress and end his attorney general campaign following allegations that he physically abused his ex-girlfriend. We believe women. We believe Karen Monahan, ultraviolet executive director Shauna Thomas, said in a statement Monday. A domestic abuser does not belong in any position of power, but particularly not as the top prosecutor in the state. Keith Ellison should withdraw his candidacy for Minnesota's attorney general and resign from the House of Representatives. Now, you know, I'll say this because, like I say, you know, at the my initial exposure to this story was coming back into town after having been up north and outside of, you know, cell signals and, and Wi-Fi, having no access to anything. It was actually kind of nice to be with the family under those circumstances for a few days. And coming back in to, you know, the signal and uh, having my phone blow up with this Facebook post from the son of Karen Monaghan. And my initial reaction to it was, well, you know, this is, what are you going to do with this? This is hearsay. I'm sure that there are better people than me who are investigating this, and we'll see where it goes. And, you know, I'm not jumping to any sort of conclusions one way or the other in terms of, you know, whether or not Keith Ellison actually did the things he's been accused of or what have you. And to me, the, the what's of particular note at this moment is not that question. The question of whether or not he's guilty of domestic abuse is something that's not going to be determined by me. It's not going to be determined by us here on this show. What is interesting to me is the clear double standard, and it was highlighted to a large degree by John Gilmore when we talked to him at the top of the program, the double standard in the treatment of this accusation by the media in particular and and by many of the Democrats uh, in their party versus how they would react were this a Republican. And, you know, uh, John Gilmore brought to our attention the the comment from Ari Fleischer, who was the press secretary under George W. Bush, that had this occurred, had the, a, the mirror image of this situation occurred under the George W. Bush administration, and you had a deputy chair of the RNC who was also a congressperson running to be attorney general in a state, and it came out that there was a, a credible accusation, uh, or at least a plausible accusation, of domestic abuse, the press would be knocking down their door, asking for comment, from every Republican that could get a mic and a camera in front of, and that's just not happening with this story. There's a seeming reluctance to cover it aggressively and a, and a desire to you know do the absolute minimum to just report what the the least you know it's to actually do what journalists are supposed to do, which is just report the facts. Which would be fine if that's what they always did, but it's not, right? Like we, they editorialize, they interweave within their quote journalism unquote their opinions and their presumptions, and they cast headlines that are provocative of you know the worst possible way to frame a scenario wherever a conservative Republicans involved, and it's it's really difficult to have a sense of fairness in regards to Keith Ellison and to, and to approach it from the perspective of, okay, let's wait and see and, and wait for the evidence to come in in the context where, you know, you would never get that benefit of the doubt from the other side. Well, what's sad is I think that we see the standard of reporting, the, how this story should be covered when this story breaks with Keith, Keith Ellison, like just the facts should be reported. Correct. 
but they go beyond that when a Republican does it. That's right. And and that's ultimately the point. It's it's not that they ought to treat this the way they treat Republicans. It's that they ought to treat Republicans the way they treat this. That's the point that I think needs to be made here. And it's, it's unfortunate that that's the point that uh, is emergent from uh, this situation. The, the other angle on this, of course, is the election. I mean, tomorrow is the primary. And potentially with a high degree of possibility that we this is what we're looking at we're looking at a candidate for a statewide office a candidate not just for any office but for the top law enforcement official in the state attorney general to be not only cuz before this story broke Keith Ellison was already a ridiculous candidate for attorney general right like everything we know about him all of his asserted beliefs, all of his associations, being cozy, playing footsie with Louis Farrakhan. You know, he's made questionable anti-Semitic comments. Uh, he He's a hard leftist who's for insane, ridiculous, reality-denying policies. You know, he's, he's as left as you get and still be able to be elected in the United States of America as opposed to someplace like communist China or Venezuela or something. So he was already an insane person to put up for statewide office. But now on top of all that, you've got this. You've got this accusation. And so we could potentially be looking at a huge ball and chain weighing down the entire Democratic ticket from now until November and providing Republicans with an unprecedented opportunity to do what they've been campaigning on doing this entire year, which is turn Minnesota red. I mean, it could be happening for horrible reasons. But it could be happening. We'll take your calls and continue when we return. We'll get into what's going on with Lori Swanson, who is also a hot mess going into tomorrow's primary. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Twin Cities News Talk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. We're following this story regarding Keith Ellison and accusations of domestic abuse during a prior relationship that blew up over the weekend and now cast a shadow over a pending primary election, which takes place tomorrow. Lots of drama here in the Twin Cities in the state of Minnesota. 651-989-5855, 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Brad Olin takes those calls and produces the show. We're streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. You can catch up on past shows, including our interview with John Gilmore from earlier tonight. By doing a search for a closing argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop right up. We'll have this show with that interview posted later this evening. Let's talk to Chuck in Janesville. Welcome to the program. Walter, hey, uh, long-time listener, first-time caller, like they like to say, and uh, uh, want to give a shout-out from all the fans down here in southern Minnesota of your show. We love it. So oh, wonderful. I'm uh, trying to spread the word about uh, uh, listening to you. This is my time to do my computer work and, uh, and listen to you. It's just awesome. Anyways, I had a question. So we keep hearing about this videotape that's, or, or video or some sort that, that is supposedly out there. Right. So what are the, what's going on behind the scenes with that? Do you think that there's attorneys involved saying, hey, we're going to hold out? 
until it's, we get a, a, a bidder? Would they buy that or, or pay them? To, I mean, what you know? Is that, that's got. There's got to be a key to that somewhere, isn't there? It's funny you should ask because during the break, I just happened to trip upon this follow-up story over at NPR News. The former girlfriend accusing DFL Congressman Keith Ellison of physical abuse said she never intended for the public to know about an alleged video that captured the abuse, and she doesn't plan to release it. The video and what it shows has become a focal point as as Ellison tries to refute a single incident of alleged domestic abuse. Don't you love how they phrase that? A single incident of alleged domestic abuse just one day before a critical election. Ellison has denied the accusation and says no video exists. Karen Monahan, Ellison's former girlfriend, says there is video, but for several reasons, she won't make it public. Now, here's the quote. She said, it's humiliating, it's traumatizing for everyone's family involved and for me. Uh, she said she's also frustrated that people won't believe that she was assaulted unless she produces a video. She said it sets the expectation for survivors of all kinds of forms of abuse, whether it be abuse toward women, abuse from police officers, abuse from other people in power, to have to be the ones like I'm doing right now to show and prove their story. She said it's feeding into that. So basically, she's making the argument that I shouldn't have to prove it. I said it. Therefore, you should believe it. Well, I, I agree with all that, but but I mean, you got to look at the. I mean, I I, I know Ellingson, and I'm not a fan at all whatsoever. Right. But but you, you know, if there's video out there, I mean, that we live in a media age now, and a day, a day and age with so many things that are out there. I just can't believe that there's not people out there just trying to figure out what can we pay for this. And and my question too is: is that common in media? Is that something that? That can be done. I mean, I'm sure it's legal to say, "Hey, you know, the highest bidder, we're going to get make some money off this." Not sure. that it's yeah. ethical or sure. whatever, but happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Happens all the time. Cool. Now, I, I don't know if well, that's thanks. what's happening here. Yeah, appreciate you calling in. Appreciate you listening to the program from Southern Minnesota. I don't know that that's what's happening here. I th- this this smells like one of two things to me: her not wanting to release the video. I mean, either there is a video or there isn't. Right? There either is a video or there isn't. And if there isn't a video, then it seems like for whatever motivation, whether it's, you know, to, to get him back personally or to affect the, the primary election or for some unimaginable, undisclosed motive, the desire is to use the specter of an alleged video in order to affect how things turn out tomorrow. And, you know, if that's the goal, then... Obviously, you want to have a, a credible reason or a plausible reason for why you're not releasing the video that doesn't exist. And so that's one possibility. The other possibility is that she's, that she legit, this is her legitimate defense, that she really doesn't want to release it because she doesn't think she should have to, which is interesting because, you know, look, I, I agree she shouldn't have to release it to me or to you or to the the star tribune right like she doesn't owe us the video but maybe she could provide it to oh i don't know the police maybe she could provide it to you know the, the authorities or maybe she could provide it to a newspaper with the or show it to a reporter without actually disclosing it to the broader public so that somebody could actually attest to the veracity of the thing and it seems as though you know, if the video exists and she's being sincere in terms of her explanation as to why she doesn't want to show it, that it's it's in order to try to push this narrative that women shouldn't have to provide evidence of their accusations, which is absurd. 
It's absurd. This idea that, and look, if you want to argue to me that there's a problem, the Star Tribune has this whole series ongoing. You know, every Sunday there's a new expose as to the horrible state of sexual assault investigations in this state, and that the evidence is overwhelming. The state of sexual abuse accusations, uh, reports to police and what have you, and investigations is horrendous, and something does need to be done about that. But one thing that absolutely must not be done is to remove due process, to remove the requirement to actually demonstrate that somebody is guilty of what you're accusing them of. This idea that if a woman just says something happened, that that's prima facie incontrovertible evidence that must be taken as gospel is an insane idea that can never be allowed to gain traction in in jurisprudence. And you know, if if that's part of the motivation here is to try to push that idea, then in our zeal to have something to to pin on Keith Ellison, you know, we we ought not swallow uh, that particular poison pill along with all of this. Now, of course. Of course, Keith Ellison is not the only person, he's not the only Democrat running for statewide office who is facing scandal right now. The Star Tribune reports on an ongoing scandal that's been haunting Attorney General Lori Swanson, who's seeking the Democratic nomination for governor in this state. They write, a day after a former aide accused Attorney General Lori Swanson of using her elected office to advance her political career, Swanson responded Friday by releasing the aide's criminal record in emails from the attorney general's office this is insane i i first of all haven't you just by doing this haven't you just validated the entire narrative that you're using your office for political reasons you sent the email from your office utilizing attorney general official resources to answer a accusation in the context of a political campaign. So obviously it's true. You are using your office in order to promote your campaign. Clearly number one. So you've just stepped on that. And then number two, you're going to throw your own staff member under the bus by releasing his criminal record. And, and here's the, the, the weird thing about that. Are, are we to understand Lori Swanson? That you didn't know this guy had a criminal record when you hired him? They knew he had a criminal record, and the previous Attorney General, Mike Hatch, um, expunged it. But then Mike Hatch came out and said that he expunged it and threw him under the bus anyways, which is highly unethical as a lawyer. Extraordinarily. I mean, this is on par with the the whole Mike Cohen thing and, you know, coming out with tapes of Trump. You know, it's like you, you're... It, it it's not good but you know this story it's it's astounding in how it demonstrates the unmitigated shameless arrogance of the democratic party in the state of minnesota they believe that they own this office they believe that they own the attorney general spot and that they will never have to give it up to anybody else, and that that post exists not to uphold the laws of Minnesota, not to advocate for we the people here in this state, but to facilitate the political ambitions of the next person sitting in the green room waiting to run for governor under the DFL banner. That's what they think the Attorney General's office is for. That's how Mike Hatch treated it. That's how Lori Swanson is treating it. And at this point, the evidence is so overwhelming. You know, when you've got, you've got 
any number of staff. I think the Star Tribune says they talked to six different people, uh, a couple of whom were willing to put their names on the record, each of whom confirmed this narrative that working under Lori Swanson in the Attorney General's office was to work under coercion at all times with the imp- with the implication that was clearly understood by all that you will volunteer to perform political work for Lori Swanson and for Mike Hatch, or you will not be promoted, you will not get raises, you will not advance in your career, and you're getting paid by the state. And on top of that, we know from candidate filings and from campaign finance reports that Lori Swanson doesn't have a campaign staff. Lori Swanson isn't paying anybody to run her campaign. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because she doesn't need to because she's already got those bases covered, leveraging your tax dollars to unethically and perhaps illegally force her own staff members within her own office to work on the part of her campaign. Absolutely atrocious. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Edson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. So we talked last week, or a couple of weeks ago, at some point in the recent past, about the situation in South Africa that stands as a portent of things to come here in the United States. And you might think that's a ridiculous claim. Because, you know, what's going on in South Africa is they are quite literally debating and and coming very close to implementing a policy whereby they're going to seize property from white people to redistribute to blacks, like just take people's farms away and give it to black people. And that, I mean, this is, this is redistribution manifest in the most stark way possible. Like they're not even cloaking it in any sort of, you know, they're not putting any sugar coating on it at all. Just plain and simple theft. Taking your stuff, redistributing it along racial grounds. Nazi-level stuff that's going on in South Africa. And, you know, so looking at that, you might think to yourself, well, you know, that's South Africa. What are you going to do? That's Something like that would never happen here. But that's exactly the kind of thing that the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and Nancy Pelosi and you know Elizabeth Warren and Tom Perez and Keith Ellison have talked about implementing here in the United States. Anytime they talk about any kind of wealth redistribution scheme, that this is in essence, in principle, the exact same thing. Taking property from people who have gainfully earned it to redistribute it to people who have not. And it's interesting entertaining the rhetoric out of South Africa because it really, they don't, like I say, they don't sugarcoat it. They don't veil it. They don't try to pull their punches. They just tell you exactly what their worldview is and exactly what it is that they're getting after. And again, this is illustrative and in, indicative of what we find ourselves facing here in the United States. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. So there's a place or a piece at the BBC that covers this, and I, I want to share this part of it with you. 
the party, which is uh, the party that's in power in South Africa, has found it impossible to ignore the calls to go beyond its, listen to this, willing seller, willing buyer approach to land reform. Willing seller, willing buyer. Like, that, that's just property. Like, that's all it is. Property, right? Like, what? what's the alternative to willing seller, willing buyer? The alternative is unwilling seller, right? Unwilling buyer. Initiating force to take something from somebody against their will. That's the only alternative to that. So this is a, a euphemistic way of presenting freedom, presenting property, presenting liberty as if it's just like a policy decision, like a minor policy detail that's up for debate. That's how things start. Mr. Ramaphosa, who's the president over there in South Africa, appears to have bypassed a parliamentary consultation when he said in a television address that the Constitution should be amended. Section 25 of the South African Constitution deals with property issues and there has long been a debate about whether it allowed the state to take land away without money being paid for it. A parliamentary committee has been looking into changes to the Constitution to allow expropriation in the public interest. Again, another euphemism, expropriation in the public interest. In other words, taking people's property because we've invented a reason to do so. In the public interest is a euphemism in itself. Yes, it is. Absolutely. And that's one that's used here in the United States all the time. Anytime somebody evokes the public interest or the common good or the greater good, they they are inventing a reason that does not exist. And they are guaranteed, anytime they evoke that, they are going against individual rights. They are looking to violate somebody's individual rights. It's nationwide television public hearings have been a, a show of emotion by people of all racial groups, regardless of class or political affiliation over there in South Africa. During a session held this week in Cape Town's Goodwood suburb, one woman representing the South African Homeless People's Association said 24 years of liberal democracy has increased poverty. So, you know, in other words, she's blaming capitalism. She's blaming uh, classical liberal ideas of freedom and individual rights on uh, as a cause of poverty in South Africa. She says the masses are worse off because of the willing buyer, willing seller principle. In other words, the masses are worse off because of freedom. The masses are worse off because of liberty. The masses are worse off because of individual rights and because of property as such. Another person who gave testimony said, and this is the, this is the, the money quote here. We are going to take the land, even if it means we're going back to the dark ages. This country must be African. We are African. That's the quote. Now that right there, that's that is the most honest leftist quote I've heard possibly ever. The guy says we're going to take the land even if it means we're going back to the dark ages. Now that's some honesty right there because that is what the left is after. They are after the dark ages. They are against the Enlightenment. They are against classical liberal principles, libertarian principles, the principles of freedom upon which this country and all of Western civilizations were built. The Dark Ages is right. That's their destination. That's where they want to go. And figures like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez want to take us there. 
with her insane ideas, such as Medicare for All, which is basically just repackaged, rebranded socialized medicine that the left estimates will cost $32.6 trillion, and she has a plan to raise just $2 trillion for. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. FM closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Streaming TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. Appreciate you joining us. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Catch up on past shows by doing a search for closing argument in your iHeartRadio app. Our channel will pop right up there for you. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. We've been covering, amongst other things, Keith Ellison's drama, his scandal involving accusations of domestic abuse from a prior long-term relationship. We also talked about Lori Swanson and the mire of controversy that she finds herself uh, in regarding the use of her staff and public resources within the Attorney General's office to campaign for her politically. And uh, both of these accusations, to varying degrees, seem to be credible and plausible and potentially will have an effect upon the primary election taking place tomorrow. And uh, we put a a bow on the hour talking about what's going on in South Africa, whereby there is a serious public policy debate about altering their constitution to allow the expropriation, i.e. seizure of private property owned by whites in order to redistribute it to blacks in that country and this is something that has been being seriously considered uh, as somehow legitimate. And I, I hold, ma- maintain that it's a portend of things to come here in the United States. I mean, we already have the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez going out there stumping for insane policies that even by her own analysis she can't pay for, but she thinks we just ought to be able to somehow do because it's it would be nice. It would be nice if magic was a thing. Let's talk to Eric in Chanhassen. Welcome to the program. Hey, Drew. Uh, I just moved to Minnesota from Texas. I'm on a mission to help Minnesota become a red state, but <laughs> that's Sounds a good. part of why I'm calling. I'm I'm hearing you know a lot of what you're saying. I, the left is is completely unhinged. Uh, just the other night, uh, national night out on Monday night, um, the Democratic candidate Kelly Morrison and in, in place 33B here for the House of Representatives came out and was campaigning. And I asked her straightforward. I said, you know, I'm from Texas, no income tax state. We're getting drilled on income taxes now, and I'm seeing it every week. And we're, you know, we're a middle-class family, and it hurts. Mm-hmm. And what are you going to do for me? And it was just, well, some people need it more than us. And all that. I'm so tired of them spending my money and, and hurting my family with all the work that my wife and I both do. We work right. hard for our children. Right. And, you know, we need... We need to vote a straight Republican ticket coming up in the fall here. I'm worried about the Democratic ground game here in Chanhazen. I am seeing it. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I hope that I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm a little bit worried about how um, active the Democrat, or I guess you guys call it the DFL here, that's yeah. a new term for me, uh, is here. So, uh, you know, I'm doing what I can, but, but we just need to ask them the tough questions. What are you going to do for tax relief? You know, where do you stand on life? Where do you stand on on 
on a lot of the key issues that are conservative values that a lot of Minnesotans value. Uh, along with new Minnesotans like me. You know, I like the passion that you are bringing to your points, Eric, and it sounds like you're interested in approaching things from the moral high ground, which is very different. You know, one thing, coming from Texas, you're used to an environment whereby Republicans are dominant and, I imagine, aggressive and not shy about sharing their points. You'll come yeah, you to gotta, learn. You've got to be right enough. Yeah, right. You, you'll come to learn uh, after spending a little bit of time here in Minnesota that that's not how Republicans do things here. We are very defensive. We're very apologetic. We pull our punches. You know, we're always apologizing for our positions, for things that we say and what have you. And that needs to stop. We need to, to shake this Stockholm syndrome and start being aggressive about what we believe and putting them on the defensive, just like you suggest. You know, where are you on me being able to keep the fruits of my labor in order to provide for my family? Where are you on protecting the lives of the unborn? Where are you on upholding the rights of individuals to pursue happiness as is our right under the Constitution and articulating the Declaration of Independence? Why don't you believe in that? Why don't you believe in constitutional values? Absolutely. And and I just can't get straightforward answers from the UDFL people or now the one candidate you know I've uh, encountered. I will tell you this. All she did was motivate me to get out there and vote for Cindy Pugh in the fall. Not that I'm working with their campaign sure. or anything, but I look forward to voting a straight Republican ticket. Minnesota's going the right way, at least the last election. Yeah. Like it was pointing us that way. Let's hope that uh, the trend can continue um, in the fall. Well, I'll tell you what, the next time you see Cindy, tell her Walter said hi. Uh, she's an old friend from the Tea Party days. So. No problem. Talk All right. To you later. Take care. Let's talk to Anthony in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. I was just calling about the whole uh, South African thing right now and uh, in a form, I guess, reappropriation of land and so on and so forth and how we've seen time and time again it's not going well. These farms are being handed over and they're falling apart. Mm-hmm. At the same time, if you look at history and the colonization of South Africa, it's a pretty messy history. Yeah, absolutely, but, no doubt. And with that being said, I'd like to talk about the fact that Du Beers Diamonds mm-hmm. controls 80% of the diamond mines in South Africa, which is a London-based company. And mm-hmm. they also control a large, large part of the economy there mm-hmm. because of the, the GDP that that produces. And it, you don't think that they're not letting this happen because of the fact that it's going to lower wages in their mines like the rest of Africa? If you can eliminate these regular Western wages and these practices and stuff and go back to paying people, you know what I mean, like in, in like the way they used to pay in the United States with mm-hmm. uh, uh, currency in a coal mine. That right, right, that you could only spend there. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can revert to that, yeah. think how profitable that will be for yeah. the beers and so on and so forth. So while everybody's trying to point the finger at the African nation as mm-hmm. reappropriating their land, Let's not forget about the mega, 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 mega industries that are allowing this to happen because mm-hmm. it's going to be profitable for them. Because at the end of the day, they're not going to stop mining diamonds. Only thing that's going to happen is it's going to the cost is going to go down. Mm-hmm. So it's appropriate for them. And now you may call this a conspiracy theory. Throw it out there. And I'm, I, again, I'm just you know, I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm well, not I, a I don't know. 
I don't know enough about the the history and politics of South Africa to you know analyze that one way or the other. But I will I will say this: the way Du Bois has pretty much formed the politics yeah. of South Africa, and yeah. if you look into the history of it, I I I'll open you up to please please do yeah. educate yourself. And in the fact that it's been it's been a very ugly messy history, sure, and at sure. the end of the day, I think it's white people screwing white people over there. It's and and. It's Africans trying to just get a piece of the pie along the way. And we'll I appreciate your points, Anthony. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate your points. And, you know, the, look, there is a model there in terms of, you know, we all are familiar with the term useful idiot. And usually we we think of that in terms of people who subscribe to communist or socialist ideas without really being cognizant of what it is that they're signing on to. I think the term useful idiot has more apropos utility when we apply it as as anthony in minneapolis did to crony capitalism there there is always seemingly a a crony capitalist force which you know i hate that term because it's an oxymoron but there's there's always a business interest that aims to benefit from the adoption of liberty violating individual rights violating policies and uh, that is definitely something we should uh, keep our eye on and remain cognizant of. Let's talk to another Anthony, this one across the river in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Um, so I just want to share uh, a quick personal story um, as to why I'm voting Jeff Johnson. Mm-hmm. Actually, I'll be honest, I just can't vote Tim Paul Lenti. I I have talked to him a few times, and I just I don't... I, I can't trust the guy. I, I had told him about how I reported several people that I knew to the SEC because they had voted more than one time, and they were also driving people around mm. to vote more than one time. Mm. So I asked him, what, I asked him, what do you plan on doing to stop this, and what do you plan on doing to help to make sure that this gets enforced? Mm-hmm. And he literally could have said anything else, and I would have been happy. But he said, we're going to make sure that our... Voter ID is enforced. Everybody needs to show an ID before they vote. And I'm like, dude, we all had to show our ID to vote. How long has it been since you voted in the election here? And then he just started talking to somebody else. He was like, next question. Dude, I, I don't, and that's just me. I would vote for a chip before I vote for Tim Pawlenty. I'm sorry. I can't, I can't do that. He could have said literally anything else and I would have been happy. All right. Well, I appreciate you calling in to let us know how you feel, and you'll have the chance to express that tomorrow in the primary election. I hope everybody gets a chance to get out to the polls and uh, let their voice be heard. Let's talk to Barry, also in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. You you realize that this has already been talked about, what they are doing in South Africa and and northern Minnesota when they were doing that pipeline demonstration Mm. while trying to reconstitute the... Black Band of Ojibwe's closed reservation again, and the White Earth Reservation. I don't think it's mainstream inside their reservation, at least politically, but there's people talking about this already. Fill me in on the details of that, because I'm not familiar. So, so you know how the Red Lake Reservation oh. in the state of Minnesota that helped preserve Oh, we're losing you. That's uh, that's unfortunate because I'm would have been interested in knowing the details of that, but unfortunately, he must have been driving through a tunnel or something. Well, 
um, land redis- redistribution has been considered by American presidents in the past. Mm. After the Civil War, Ulysses S. Grant seriously considered uh, giving land from plantations to the slaves who worked on those plantations. Sure. Which actually might have been a legitimate claim. Sure. Like, you can have the same argument under, like, wage theft right now. Right. If, if, but see, the what's different, and this is a critical point, what's different in a situation like that, and I don't know what the, what was the specifics of what was being deliberated at that time, but if your modus operandi is, we're going to take a case-by-case look at people's individual claims and try to affect justice by restoring them to what they have actually earned and what they properly own, that's entirely legitimate, but that's not what they're talking about in South Africa. No. And it's probably not what they were considering up north you know, in terms of what Barry was about to let us in on either. There's this idea that in order to affect social justice, we're going to take property from people who happen to have the same skin color as others who we've deemed to be oppressors, and we're going to give it to people who happen to have the same skin color as others who have been oppressed and, you know, congratulate ourselves for having somehow affected social justice. The moral math doesn't work that way. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, com. So I mentioned at the top of the show that I had a long weekend. I went out of town. The family and I, I went with my in-laws and uh, my family, my kids, my wife up to the North Shore. And we traveled the whole length of it. You know, just for just for kicks, we drove right up to the border with Canada because we were our destination was six miles from it. So you might as well go the, the extra six miles just to say you did right. And we went up to Grand Portage, and they had a powwow up there, like a legit Native American powwow. And this is something, you know, the in-laws have some uh, some family connections with the Chippewa up there. And, but and you know, despite having been uh, among the family for, what's it been, like 17 years now, um, I had never gone up there. I had never seen firsthand anything that goes on up there with, with the powwow. And so this was a, a unique opportunity to, to get to see what it was like. And I intentionally, because I knew this was coming up, this was, you know, a big summer plan that we had several months in advance. I intentionally avoided finding out about it or trying to look into what to expect, what I was getting myself into. Because I thought it would be more interesting to just have the experience with as little preconception as possible and to just kind of take it all in. And I was struck by a number of things which are relevant to the stuff we talk about here on the program every night. You know, the the my major takeaway from it was that the reality of cultural life uh, on the Grand Portage Reservation uh, amongst the Ojibwe and the Chippewa. The reality of their life defies the dominant political narratives on both the left and the right. Because what I saw up there was tremendous (laughs) diversity, right? Like real diversity in terms of skin color, in terms of you know, the, the, the types of people who were in attendance and the, the cultural expression that was taking place up there. You had American flags everywhere. 
They were extraordinarily reverent of veterans. It was very similar to like a, a uh, an air show or some similar or or a sporting event in terms of the amount of patriotic display that was put on and the reverence and respect and honor that was given to their veterans and their elders. And you know this this flies in the face of the notion that that's white people stuff that it, that should be kept separate and that's some sort of encroachment upon uh, the the oppressed minority they were proud of the american flags that they had on display they were proud of their veterans who have served uh, the united states of america in various conflicts and they they were proud to be, consider themselves Americans, and they also didn't seem to have a whole lot of concern for what the left refers to as cultural appropriation, right? I mean, they had appropriated American culture, and indeed, you know, as you as you walk as I walked around and I dealt with various vendors or saw various vendors, you know, everybody was wearing crosses. We it went up there and saw. We went to several different cemeteries where um, relatives. Um, of the family were uh, laid to rest in years past to to visit those graves, and every single one of them was dominated by crosses. And these were Indian cemeteries, right? Native American cemeteries. And so, obviously, they'd appropriated culture, right, at some point, but it wasn't something that anybody was thinking about. They weren't thinking about it in those terms. And, you know, you had folks there who were, who to look at them, you'd say they were white, right? If you looked at them, you'd say they were white. And they're in full regalia at this powwow. And I know for a fact, if the same people were walking down the street in Dinkytown right now, you they would be assaulted by some woke progressive activist student who took it upon themselves to come up to them and declare them to be culturally appropriating Native American culture and say that it's inappropriate and call them out. When in point of fact... They have a legitimate relational claim to the tradition, and the activist woke student does not. And that's the level of absurdity that we've ascended to in terms of the the narrative here, whereby people's actual, you know, and the left claims to be so accommodating of and, and to value so highly lived experience. Well, the lived experience of the Native Americans of Grand Portage is completely out of sync with the dominant political narrative on the left. Now, the right doesn't escape from this, you know, just in case you're you're feeling a little too vindicated right now by this screed of mine. The right doesn't escape from this unscathed. Because another thing that I noticed when I was up there was the extent to which the the culture of America, the American culture and the the American pride, the flying of the flag, the uh, the blending of different traditions and cultural ideas had taken place up there and had done so in a manner that was unapologetic and unconcerned with segregating ideas and segregating origins. There was nothing segregationist about the way the the native americans conducted themselves up there in grand portage they were welcoming they were not afraid of outside influence the the influence that they've been exposed to was prominently displayed all around them and within them 
they had um, alongside the American flag. They also had the Canadian flag because, of course, they're right up there against the border. So they had that on display. They had their tribal flags on display and uh, various uh, military symbolism and regalia. And all of this was marching hand in hand, side by side, proudly around the powwow arena. And, you know, so this idea of we need to protect our culture, which is a dominant political narrative on the right right now, particularly in the context of the immigration debate, that we need to protect our culture from the the onslaught of foreign influence over our borders. Well, that's not something that the Grand Portage Native Americans are particularly concerned about. They've already adopted, they've, they've uh, sorted through the variety of options that have been offered to them, and they've sifted the wheat from the chaff. They've decided what values to adopt and what values to shed, and they've d- adopted best practices from everything that's been presented to them. And that's how this works. That's how cultural appropriation actually works in the positive, life-affirming sense. You, uh, you do, we do appropriate culture. Every relationship is an appropriation of culture. The reason why you choose, even on the individual level, the reason why you want to spend time with another human being is because they're bringing something to the table that you would not otherwise get. And they feel the same way about you for whatever reason. And you're able to engage in this relational transaction, which you both walk away from better off for. And you've exchanged culture. You've, ex- you've appropriated each other's better parts. And, and that's why you feel you perceive yourself to be better off for the exchange. That happens on an individual level. It happens on a small group level. It happens in terms of entire communities and entire nations. And so this idea that, you know, on both the left and the right, and they have various versions of it, that we need to segregate ourselves and classify ourselves and think of ourselves as a group that's pitted against some other group. It's, it's not only impractical and immoral, I would argue. But it's also out of sync with how people actually live their lives, both historically and in terms of you know the the micro individual level of of how we go about our day to day. Whether we find ourselves up in Grand Portage on a reservation or we find ourselves down here in the Twin Cities uh, doing our daily grind. Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. Closing argument. My name is Walter Atson. Twin Cities News Talk AM eleven thirty one zero three five FM. Twin Cities News Talk dot com. bag of different stories here that are unrelated to each other but related in the sense that they uh, provoked my attention and i've got something to say about them closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 11:30, fm streaming at twincitiesnewstalk.com and your iheart radio app we're here nine to eleven weeknights by the way we're going to have a special extended edition of the program tomorrow. Tomorrow, of course, is the primary election here in the state of Minnesota. And uh, we're going to be on at 8 o'clock. And when I say we, it's kind of a proverbial sort of royal we because I actually, as it turns out, am not going to be here. It's going to be all Brad. Brad Omlin, helped along the way by Kip and Max from Kip and Max Save the World. They're going to come in to analyze the election results live and local and get your reaction as we find out 
who is going to be the Republican gubernatorial candidate on the general election ballot, who's going to be representing Republicans and Democrats for both of the open U.S. Senate seats. And right on down the line, of course, we're going to have major developments in these ongoing controversies regarding Keith Ellison running for attorney general and Lori Swanson, who's running for governor. So all kinds of fun stuff to monitor live as it happens with Brad and Kip and Max. And later on myself, once I eventually get here on closing arguments. So I hope you'll join us at eight o'clock tomorrow night. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us now. And then, Brad Ullman taking your calls and producing the show. So let's start here with USA Today. They've got a piece about paper ballots. The headline is, Paper Ballots Are Hack-Proof. It's Time to Bring Them Back. It's an opinion piece by Glenn Harlan Reynolds. He writes, I've been talking about the importance of protecting against voting machines since uh, 2002 against their hacking, and now finally people are starting to take me seriously. The move to paperless voting started in response to the Florida hanging Chad fiasco in the 2000 presidential election. Some people, like me, thought this was a mistake, but such concerns were often dismissed. Now, apparently, you can't be paranoid enough. As Politico's Bob King noted, while 10 years ago critics of paperless voting were called paranoid, now both parties are worried. It remains true that there is no actual evidence that a single vote was changed by hackers in the 2016 election, but even the possibility of hacking has served to promote the sort of conspiracy mongering and political hatred that led to, for example, the shooting attack on Republican lawmakers. Uh, in I believe he's referring to um, Steve Scalise, and this was written back in that time. In a democratic polity, people have to believe that their votes are counted honestly or the legitimacy of the system collapses. And if we are to believe the latest NSA leaks on the subject, Russian and other hackers have been interested in American voting systems for a while, and that interest, contrary to Obama administration assurances, didn't decline after Obama made a red phone call to the Kremlin. Uh, so what should we do? Well, we should try to boost our cybersecurity. But given that the NSA, the FBI, and the CIA are leaking important secrets on a daily basis, maybe we're not up to that job. So, once again, let me suggest that we return to something that, by its very nature, can't be hacked by a guy in St. Petersburg, paper ballots. And this is something that strikes me. You know, we've had a number of stories uh, recently that you know, stories along the lines of, you know, 12 year old hacks voting machine in two minutes or, you know, uh, a I believe there's some convention called DEFCON. That's apparently where a bunch of hackers get together and a number of them hacked into Diebolt voting machines and demonstrated this is something that can happen. It can happen relatively easily. It's not that complicated, relatively low tech, low informed uh, technical folks can do this. And to me, the answer, you know, right in line with what this author is articulating here at USA Today, is pretty obvious and should be pretty non-controversial, which is paper balloting. Count physical ballots. There was a, a guy uh, on Facebook, a friend of mine, who went further and said, look, the, we should have ballots that have serial numbers on them so that you can actually attach them. You know, you're not going to publicize, you know, it's a secret ballot. You're not going to publicize who actually voted for who, but so that you can actually track that this individual ballot so, so that the voter has a copy, right? So the voter can actually verify that his ballot was counted in such a way that actually matches up with his intention. 
you know, when he compares it on the Secretary of State side or however that process would work. And so the idea isn't necessarily that there's no kind of electronic uh, record of any kind, but rather that the actual process by which you go from casting your ballot at your polling place to it being reported to the Secretary of State is a verifiable paper hard copy process. And that, you know, the, the security aspect of that should be self-evident. It's insulated. It's isolated. It's segregated. You know, people can cheat, right? But they can only cheat insofar as you, you add ballots to or take ballots from a particular precinct's collection of ballots. And so in order to cheat on a large scale, you would have to do so in a highly coordinated manner that exposed you to being caught because you'd have to do it at multiple precincts. And this is something that, that a hacker doesn't have to worry about. A hacker doesn't have to worry about getting caught because they're doing it remotely. A hacker doesn't have to worry about interfering with particular precincts because you know they can just hack in over a network and affect multiple precincts if they have the ability to do so. Strikes me as a pretty, uh, pretty common sense solution to the problem. And I think the reason why we're not seeing a common sense solution like this taken seriously in the current moment is because as is so common with the left, they're not actually interested in the hacking of our election system, the literal hacking of it. What they're interested in is making hay out of the specter of Russian influence. And it's much easier. They, you know, like so many of the problems that they raise, whether it's supposed racism or income inequality or whatever the case may be, healthcare costs, they're not actually interested in solving the problem. They're interested in leveraging the problem for political effect. And in that sense, they're interested in maintaining the problem for as long as they can, as long as it's politically advantageous. Let's talk to Mike in Farmington. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Walter. Yep. There's a whole bunch of things that just came across my mind when you were you were talking earlier. Um, you brought up that South African story. Yeah. And then I, the, um, what was it? We're going back to the dark ages. Yeah, that was the guy. The guy actually said, "This is South Africa. They're kicking around the idea of amending their constitution or just reinterpreting how it's currently written." to justify seizing, expropriating property from white farmers to give to black people. And one of the guys they quoted, who's an activist in favor of you know this redistribution of property, was, we need to take the land, even if it means going back to the Dark Ages. That's literally what he said. Uh, but the, uh, the reason for my call was what I saw with this, the... Uh I guess the pilot, the party of violence and hate, if you will, is uh, this Antifa. Uh, is there any Democrat on record of actually criticizing that and what's going on with Antifa? Um, I think there've been there've been skeptical comments or, or very you know there've been Democrats who've pulled their punches in, in criticizing violence. I mean, Obama got in trouble, right? Because he came out and said. You know, you shouldn't be criticizing uh, or, or shutting down people based on the color of their skin when they're trying to speak into a particular issue and telling people that if they're white, they can't have they don't have anything to say about social justice. Uh, and, and, it, and we also shouldn't be punching people in the face, you know, as part of the public discourse. He got in trouble for that. So it has happened, but it certainly hasn't happened with the vigor and the principled um, sense of, of fury that you would hope for. Well. 
Another thing that was really disturbing was this, you know, no borders, no walls. There's some chance mm-hmm. of this going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, how do you even have a country anymore when you have this lunacy that's being advocated by people like, uh, oh, what's that woman from New York? Yeah, Ocasio-Cortez. Um, yeah. yeah. We basically have no borders. And then I saw an exchange tonight between Tucker Carlson and some professor from uh, the uh, University of Indiana and where Tucker basically char- uh, challenged the guy and said, well, if you don't have any borders and you're going to have, like, welfare programs uh, active, and I believe it was, uh, who was the, Milton Friedman, I believe, Jason Lewis used to refer to all the time, you can't have the entitlement state and open borders. I mean, there's no way your country would even exist. Everybody would flock to this country and the system would just totally collapse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, look, I mean, the, regardless of where you find yourself on the question of, of immigration, and you know, as, as you're well aware, Mike, we've, we've had that debate on the show, I think it's, uh, it, there's no question that that combination of welfare state, entitlement state, and open borders is unsustainable. And to your broader question as to how you even have a country under these circumstances, I think the the answer to the question is you don't, right? And that's why, in their wisdom, the founding fathers recognized that the union was something that people, you know, contrary to the way the Civil War has been interpreted, the union is something that people ought to be able to exit from. And you there's know, another dynamic, and you, you may or may not be aware of the, uh, and I'm not necessarily saying this is the ideal, but it's actually quite interesting. You've heard of the Proud Boys, I'm sure. I uh, refresh my memory. Well, uh, uh, do you know who Gavin McInnes is? Doesn't he ring a bell. himself a Western chauvinist. Okay. He used to be a regular on Fox News. He's a, he's a Canadian. Okay. And I guess they're trying to shut him down. But anyways, the Proud Boys will go in and they'll, be, they'll basically counteract the Antifa okay. group. And basically, it's it's men getting together of any race, of even of any sexual orientation, that, mm-hmm. that are saying, you know what, we're tired of being uh, demonized. Mm-hmm. And when you've seen the rise of feminism in the Western world, men have turned into, if the current, uh, I guess the current terminology is simps and soy boys. We're basically shut up. You're going to do as you're told. Yeah. And the strong the strong male figure right. basically eroded in Western culture. Yeah, there's definitely truth to that. I appreciate your thoughts as always, Mike. Appreciate you calling in the program. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. com. Yeah, there's a real chilling, of innocuous speech that is taking place in the country right now, where you, know, you can't you you can't be anything other than woke. You can't be anything other than a warrior in the resistance against Donald Trump, because if you are, if you sh- show even the slightest amount of human feeling and compassion and decency towards somebody who disagrees with the hard left, you're opening yourself up to 
boycott and calls for your firing, you know, calls for, for being cast out like a leper from society, from the community. It's quite insane what's taking place right now, the environment that we find ourselves in. There's an example of it here coming out of Houston. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855 is the number to shoehorn in a comment here at the end of the show. From a publication called LifeZet, a Texas restaurant was forced to shut down its social media accounts on Saturday after it received backlash for posting a photo of Jeff Sessions during the Attorney General's visit to the Houston chain. The Fury against El Tempio Cantina began when the restaurant posted a picture on Friday of owner Lorando Lorenzo's son and Sessions. Lorenzo wrote in the caption that it was an honor to serve the attorney general who was in Houston to meet the law enforcement officers on crime and illegal immigration. Fans quickly condemned the post and lambasted the restaurant for serving sessions. Some people urged customers to boycott the restaurant while others sent death threats to Lorenzo and the staff. I felt like it was a slap to the community that supports the restaurant and that backs up the restaurant and that works for the restaurant. Houston resident Gilma Aguare said, or told to the local ABC affiliate. The post was taken down, you know, because this is what you, how you got to react now. The post was taken down, and Lorenzo wrote an apology saying the picture does not represent us supporting Sessions' position. El Tempio does not in any way support the practice of separating children from parents or any other practice of the government relative to immigration. The posting of a photograph of the Attorney General at one of our restaurants does not represent us supporting his positions. Lorenzo wrote in a Facebook post before the restaurant's account was deactivated. Lorenzo said the restaurant did not know it would be serving sessions, and the staff was focused on serving great food and giving great customer service. The man came to dinner, and he was served without us even thinking about the political situations, Lorenzo wrote. It was posted without review or approval by ownership, and this has led to everyone jumping to conclusions that somehow we are involved in this political matter. We don't approve of anyone separating parents and children. Now, the... This piece in here, that last comment from Lorenzo, the guy who owns this restaurant, the man, Jeff Sessions, came to dinner and he was served without us even thinking about the political situation. Isn't that normal? Isn't that the way life is supposed to be? Why is everything political? Why is everything political nowadays? Why can't you separate the fact? Listen, shouldn't it be an honor as a as a entrepreneur, as a restauranteur, as somebody who owns a business, shouldn't it be an honor for the Eter- Attorney General of the United States, no matter who it is, to come and choose to eat at your restaurant? Look, there's there's I look, I, I have issues with Donald Trump, as you guys know, as those of you who have been longtime listeners to the program know, I have issues with Trump. I certainly had massive problems with Barack Obama, massive disagreements with Eric Holder. If I ever, in the course of my life, had the opportunity to meet any of these men, or if I found myself in a position where I did meet any of these men, regardless of my profound and principled disagreements with them on policy, and in some cases on political philosophy and even morality, I would be honored to meet them. Not because of what they believe and not because as an affirmation of the things that they've done, but because of the positions that they've held and the significance that they have had. 
by virtue of the positions that they've held. You know, when Donald Trump comes, you know, the next time he comes around to, you know, he came to Duluth just recently. The next time he comes to town, I'm going to seriously consider taking the opportunity to go to wherever the rally is and to take my kids. Because, you know, whatever sort of disagreements that I may have with him on on tariffs, you know, and my obviously my disagreements with Trump are less significant than my disagreements with somebody like Barack Obama or Eric Holder. But whatever they are, it's irrelevant to the significance of having the opportunity to see with your own eyes the president of the United States. I went to a rally at the height of the Tea Party when Barack Obama came to town in 2012 to campaign for reelection, came down to the Target Center. I went to that rally, not because I agree with Barack Obama at all. Obviously, I don't. But it was an opportunity to see with my own eyes the president of the United States and to be able to say that I did so. And the the idea that we need to apologize for that type of experience or that type of to, to have some sense of honor and having been in the presence of somebody who has a position of prominence in society. That's where we're at now. We're at a point where the left wants us to be so segregated and so separated. You know, they had the guy, there was another story that we covered last week where a guy had to apologize for tweeting out that a lifelong friend was a nice guy because the guy happened to be a Republican who was running for governor. This is the level of absurdity that we've approached or arrived at in our culture. And we need to push back against it. We need to aggressively say, no, you guys don't get to dictate the minutiae of our lives in this manner. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.